we will tonight finish our study in 1 John uh, with a look at the theme of love, the theme of love. Um, I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 John, if you haven't been doing that already. Uh, 1 John, and we'll be in chapter 4 tonight. Uh, before we get to our text, I want to talk a little bit about words. Words can be like chameleons. Words, based on their context, uh, how they're said, who they're said by, and who they're said to, all of these things can change the meaning of words. Just think of the word interesting. Interesting. He's an interesting guy. Or something from my era. Cool. It's different depending on the context. Something from your era. Cap. <laughs> Tea. Or cook. They all can mean different things. And yes, I had to look a few of those up today. Now the word love is perhaps the king of chameleon words. And the concept of love, in general for that matter, is quite a chameleon. Love can mean different things and it can hold a different weight to it depending on the situation in which it's used. The tone in which it's said. Um, even the object of said love. Uh, considering the supposed significance that love should have to us, it, it sure does mean to seem whatever you want uh, when you want. You see, you can love gummy bears. You can love the Lakers. You can love your significant other. You can love your best friend. You can love your mom. All those things should mean different things to you. You can love that one show or that sushi place. Or you can love when that same frustrating thing happens over and over again. It's all love, right? Beyond the shifting semantics of love, our world has conjured up a broadly defined, widely accepting conception of love. Whether it's through the commercialization of Valentine's Day or it's through Netflix commercials, or it's through the Netflix shows themselves. We are faced with all sorts of false notions of love. Notions of love that have appended our standards for love, and uh, uh, they have invert inverted our expectations of love. See, because now love is accepting somebody else for who they are. Love is how much you are willing to let someone else believe their own thing or someone else do their own thing. Love is how much maybe you are willing to spend on someone else. Love is maybe desperation or vulnerability or that compartmentalized happy place that you have. Love has been redefined and reshaped in conformity to the world and to what we want. You see, even when we think about love as it relates to the Christian life, we have a shallow, emotions-based conception of what love is. It's love that is centered on our efforts 
And it's always a response to how others treat us or how we think they're treating us or what we think that they deserve just a little bit. You see, at worst, it's a love that keeps a record of wrongs. At best, it meets others exactly halfway and no further. We know in some way we're supposed to love like Jesus, right? That's what Christians are supposed to do. Uh, Yet when others inevitably fail us and it's difficult to love, we struggle and we fake it and we muster up whatever kind of love we can and then we fail and then we rinse and repeat. Friends, that's why we need John's perspective of love here in 1 John. John, the apostle of love, helps us to define and to defend a concept of love for the Christian. John, whose constant plea it was as the aging pastor of the thriving congregation at Ephesus, little children love one another. Little children love one another. Little children love one another, he would say. He will help us understand what it means to love and why we must love and how we must love. You see, in order to cultivate a genuine Christian love for others, we don't just need to try harder and do better at this love thing. We need a complete recalibration. We need to redefine our love, to rebuild our understanding of this fundamental concept, and we need to do it from God's Word. And so to do that, we'll focus tonight on one of the main sections in 1 John about love, 1 John chapter 4, and we'll be in verses 7 through 12 tonight. 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7, let's read our passage Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Let's pray. Father, we ask your spirit's help. As we look to your word, uh, illumine our minds and open our hearts as we look to grow in our love for you uh, and for one another. In Jesus' matchless name we pray, amen. Tonight as we look to redefine our love, let's look at three aspects of Christian love that will help us to simply love like we ought. Uh, We'll look first at the nature of Christian love, then we'll look at the empowerment for Christian love, and then we'll look at the assurance found in Christian love. So first, the nature of Christian love in verses 7 and 8. Christian love, uh, by its very nature, is 
unlike any other kind of love. It's a love different from the world's love in every regard because it's love that finds its starting point and its ability to be carried out and its end goal not in one's own self but in God. You see, from beginning to end, Christian love is different in that it is not found in one's own self but in God. You see, while the world's love is self-determined, it's self empowered and it's self-serving genuine christian love is found in god and it's carried out in god's power and it's centered on god look again at verses seven and eight beloved let us love one another for or because love is from god and whoever loves has been born of god and knows god you can stop there John's instruction here and in the letter of 1 John as a whole about love is simple. Love one another. Beloved, let us love one another. The instruction couldn't be any simpler. Now to be clear, the Bible absolutely has instruction for us to love other people in general. Love People even in the world to love orphans and widows and enemies, absolutely. But this instruction here in 1 John has a focus specifically on one another in the church. It's focused on believers, those who share in fellowship with God. We saw that in chapter 1. It's focused on those who are also walking in the light together with us, those who are born of God. We looked at that concept those who have life. It's focused on those who are, in this verse, seven, beloved. Beloved by John, beloved by God, and now here to be beloved by one another. This word love is a word that means to cherish, to have affection for, to take pleasure in. And it's an ongoing action in the way that John writes this. It's almost be loving one another it's affection and we'll see also later in this passage it's action it's affection and action and it's found in god this word i don't want to overcomplicate it it's the word agape you've heard that word it's the word that was used to name your youth youth group on friday nights maybe or it's the a word that you guys use for your prayer ministry in high school, or it was on t-shirts for you maybe, agape. It's, you know, unconditional love. It's faithful love. It's loyal love. It's kind of the New Testament version of hesed, God's loyal love for his people. It's love that is limitless and without prerequisites. And it's a fitting word for love here because John points out that this love, this agape, is from God. It's from God. And in verse 8, he says, God himself, God is love. Same word. Just like John's logic when we began to look at this great epistle, 
John's logic in regards to God is light, uh, who's very, the very source of, and standard of truth. God here is love, the very source and standard for love. John's logic is consistent. God, you see, is in his very nature love. He is the very essence of love. Everything he does is a demonstration of that essence of love. And so by his character and then by his deeds, he defines love. Love in its purest form. And it's the kind of love that we are looking tonight to cultivate in our own lives for one another. One commentator puts it this way about God's love. God's love is more than mere emotion or goodwill. It is his settled disposition toward us that flows from his being, nature, and divine attributes. Our pastor, Pastor John, says this, Love is inherent in all God is and does. God is love, and the biblical conception of love that we are trying to dial in tonight, it is from God. If we are trying to grow in our love, therefore we must look to him and see his love. Because the love we're talking about here that we're to demonstrate to one another is the love that God demonstrates as he deals with the world and all that he has created. Think of Psalm 145.9, the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he's made. It's the love that God faithfully displayed to his covenant people, even against their sin and over their failure to love him. I think of Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This kind of love that we're called to is the love that God demonstrated in the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the love of God. And that's the kind of love we are to have for one another. And so here in 1 John 4, when John says that God is love and that love is from God, all that God is and all that God does in these instances that we just looked at and more, that is the standard and the concept of love that we are to have in mind as we look at this command, let us love one another. It's in this way that we are to love one another. And it's with this very same love of God that is in our hearts with which we must love. You see, the nature of Christian love is that it is not, it is not a love that you come up with on your own. It's not a love that you conjure up or create based on your own intrinsic kindness. No, it is the very same essence, the very same love of God that is shed abroad in our hearts. That is the love with which we love others. You see, our love for others is a love that finds its perfect source in the God who is love. That's the nature of Christian love. It's 
holy affection toward others that manifests itself in action. It's a love first demonstrated to us by God, and then as we live it out toward others, it's a love that initiates like God. It's a love that forgives like God. It's a love that is patient like God is in his love. It's a love that suffers wrong and yet ever steadfastly endures like the faithful God that he is in his love. Brothers and sisters, let us love one another with this kind of love. And I hope that already, if you hear me say that to you, you know in your own heart the lack that you have in this kind of love. Maybe for some of you, this is the first time that you've heard that your love for others shouldn't be of your own effort. It should be. We should try. But it's the love of God first shown to you. And it's that very same essence of love that is to be your love for others. This responsibility to love is what John calls in 1 John 2 a new commandment. And it's what Jesus calls a new commandment in the book of John, the gospel of John. You see, this is a new commandment to love. And it's not new in the sense that it's a completely brand new concept. In fact, it's a concept as old as the Old Testament. Uh, Jesus had in mind, as he said, I give you a new commandment in John 13, uh, verses like Deuteronomy 6, 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And in Leviticus 19, 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You see, this love that we are to have as Christians, this new commandment, it's actually an old commandment, but it's also a new commandment because it has a new paradigm, that of the perfect love of Christ under the new covenant. It's new in its fullness and in its depth and in its scope. It's a sacrificial love and a love that knows no laws or limitations. It's the standard of Jesus himself in John fifteen thirteen. He said to his disciples, greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. This is the kind of love, a sacrificial love, even unto death, that John and the Lord Jesus calls us to. Now, verse 8 points out the opposite is also true. You see, those who don't love others with this kind of love, this kind of boundless sacrificial love. Such a person, John says, does not know God. And this person does not know God, not via some moralistic standard, but because it accords with John's logic here that if the nature of love is that it is from God and that person who is born of God and knows God has this kind of love, the person that does not know God and is not born of God would not have this kind of love in their hearts. You see, it may seem harsh at first, but John is simply saying the kind of person who does not love like God does simply may not share in his nature. The kind of person who is not born of God and does not know God will not be able to love with this kind of love. But if you are a Christian, one who is born of God, 
and one who knows God, you not only can, but you will begin to love others with the love of God. When I was in college, I went on a trip, uh, an STM trip nonetheless, uh, to Uganda, and I went uh, partially because I was an international development studies major, and I thought, what better thing to do than to be a hero in a sub-Saharan African nation, and to, uh, I don't know, build houses, dig wells, whatever they want, want me to do, I'll do it, for the sake of God and the gospel, of course. Uh, now, back then, I, I had this notion in my mind that I maybe wanted to do missions, because that's what all good and godly people do, is that they at least consider missions for a little bit, maybe a quarter or two in college. And I went to Uganda, and when I spent time with a missionary there, I very quickly realized how much love it took to be a missionary, how much sacrifice it took to be a missionary. I saw this missionary make meals for dozens of people when he didn't have the resources on the spot. I saw this missionary uh, pick up people on the side of the road and, because he recognized them from seeing them in town somewhere and invited them over for dinner. I saw this missionary uh, help people with tasks that were dirtier than you or I would ever would want to think about. I saw this missionary in the middle of the night when we were in a truck driving home pick up a mom and her baby who didn't know where the next meal was going to come from. And that missionary ended up uh, adopting that little child and helping the mother again be reunited once she had the resources. And that mother and that child went on to live on uh, the land of this missionary and I think still do to this day. The reason why I tell you this story is because in the truck on that night I asked the missionary, how is it that you can have this kind of love for people that you've never met before, or maybe you think you recognize, or you've met maybe just once or twice. And he said this to me and a few other people. The world loves till it hurts, but Jesus loved till he died. And so how could our capacity for love not be matched by the love of our Savior. That's the nature of the love we are called to. For the sake of the gospel and in the church, for the sake of the glory of God, we ought to devote ourselves to love for one another and find that our capacity for love is only outpaced by the love of our perfect Savior who died on the cross in love for us. As those born of God, this kind of love is what's in our very nature. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. That's the kind of love we have if we are children of God. There's a second aspect that we need to look at in 1 John 4 about Christian love, and it's the uh, empowerment of, excuse me, the empowerment for 
Christian love. You see, we've seen so far the nature of Christian love, and that is it's a love of God in our hearts. Secondly, we need to see here the empowerment for Christian love. Here we see how it is that we are able to love like this. We understand the nature of this kind of love is unlike any other kind of love humanly known. It's qualitatively different from natural human love. Uh, But as we see that, we may think that's near impossible then. How is this kind of love possible? And the answer is here in verses 9 to 11. Look just first at verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Now, GOC, remember the overarching logic of the book of 1 John here. When we first started this study, we saw in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, uh, John's understanding as the last remaining apostle uh, to relay that which he had heard that which he had seen, that which he had looked upon and touched with his own hands, the gracious revelation of God and his Son, what is called in this book, the word of life made manifest. And here in chapter 4, John is saying, Jesus Christ is how the love of God was made manifest among us. Just as he is the word of life made manifest, and just as he is the light of the world shining down into darkness, Jesus is also the love of God made manifest. Jesus is how we know the love of God. Jesus is the revelation of the love of God graciously bestowed on us. Jesus is how we know love in the gospel And Jesus is how we know love, that we can have love for others. And I think when we read this verse, 1 John 4, 9, I think we tend to see an example of love. We tend to see the love of God in Christ manifested to us, and we think, okay, this verse is talking about how it's the very pinnacle of love. That's what we're to emulate, It's some lofty example of the sacrificial love we ought to have. Okay, I get it. That it is. It's an example, indeed. I think of John 13. Before Jesus even went to the cross, he said this, Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Amen and amen. The love of Jesus for us is an example. Yes. But here in 1 John 4, we see that God sending his own son is so much more than just an example. You see, in it, we see here the empowerment of our love. You see, God, who is himself love and from whom is love, manifested that love to us. How? By sending his son, Jesus, and 1 John 4, 9 tells us it is by that love that John says here, we have life. Our love for others isn't mere imitation of Jesus' love. This isn't just emulation of a great example. 
This is where God's love and our love are connected. It's connected in the new birth, in the new life we have in Christ. You see, enlivened in Christ, we are enabled to love. Uh, Given new life in Christ, we are empowered with a new capacity to love. We are born of God, and so we share in very nature to our Heavenly Father, who is love. Having been given new life, we have a new nature and new abilities and new affections. And one of those abilities and one of those new affections is the love that God has for us is the same love that we have for others. That's why we need to redefine our love a little bit. Because we're so used to doing it our own way. We're so used to applying a worldly sense of love on one another and wondering why it fails. If we try to make our own way through getting along with others just by trying to make the vibes good, or if we try to psych ourselves up to get past the difficulties we find in loving one another, we won't be able to love like God calls us to with any measure of quality or faithfulness. I think that's why we so often find ourselves frustrated with our lack of love for others. Because I think we find the empowerment of our attempts to love in ourselves. We try to love others in this sort of performative, self-styled, self-dependent kind of way. And we just shove it under the banner of trying to be more like Jesus. But the love of God that we're called to in this passage is the love that is given to us as those who are born of God. You can't take that analogy too far in this. We have new life in Christ given by the Father. And so in that new life, in that new nature, we are of the same nature of our Heavenly Father who gave us new life. And in that new life, we have this kind of love in our hearts. That's the empowerment we have for love. It's like we're trying to move a car by pushing it really hard from behind when instead we could just use the key. And we have the key. We have the key that gets the engine running. And it's God's love for us. And it's new life in him. Look at the beauty of how John puts that here. Look at verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is the kind and gracious initiative of God in his love for us. I just... I love a simple statement like 1 John 4.10 to obliterate any notion of human pride in thinking that we can come to know God on our own terms. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. Just hear the, the order in that. Do you see, do you, do you get that? Do, do you understand the the grace of God in that? Or are you past that? 
Are you past being thankful that in love he sent his son for you? He sent his son for you out of his own love. And it's simply by faith in Christ that we can be his. And this verse here tells us God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And we think, whoa, okay. It's a big theological word. And it is. And it's a word you should know. I think sometimes we hear words like this and we sort of sneer at the Christianese terms. But seriously, you should know terms like this and why we use terms like this. This is such an important word because it's such an important concept for us. And John uses it also in chapter 2, verse 2. It says there, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation, in sort of simple terms, is the satisfaction of the wrath of God accomplished by Jesus. You see, it's the effect that Jesus' sacrifice has on God's righteous wrath. You and I were what Ephesians 2 calls children of wrath. Those that deserved judgment, punishment in hell. Because of our nature and by deliberate choice, we sin against the God who is light, against a holy God who we've seen, First John says, is the very definition of truth. And yet Ephesians 2, by God's grace, isn't over. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Friends, if there's anyone tonight that does not know this grace, this love, this mercy of God, if you are around Christians like you are tonight and you know that they have something you don't have, tonight might be that night for you to know the love of God in Christ Jesus. All you have to do is turn to him and surrender your life to him and live for him and live in this kind of love that we are talking about, the love of God. What's going on here theologically that is this propitiation that we're talking about? This sort of satisfaction of wrath? Uh, turn with me to Romans 3 to see this. Look at Romans 3. To look at propitiation. Romans 3, Paul is talking about uh, the righteousness of God against the unrighteousness of man and how no one is righteous and no one is good before God's eyes. Look at the end of verse 22. For there is no distinction, and then a familiar verse, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, same word, by his blood, to be received by faith. 
You see, what's being shown here in Romans 3 and what John is referring to in 1 John 4 is that there is in Christ's sacrifice on the cross a proper sacrifice, one that satisfies God's wrath, one that is an even exchange. In fact, Romans 3 goes on to talk about, uh, in, in, in verse 25, this was to show God's righteousness, meaning this was to show that God in his perfect justice, in his righteousness, he was able to pass over the sins of Old Testament believers. Why? Because the sacrifice for sin that would satisfy his wrath was coming and it came in Christ and it was all done and settled and balanced once for all. That's propitiation. It's the satisfaction of God's righteous wrath. And that's what 1 John 4.10 is talking about, that God in his love sent his own son to shed his blood on the cross. And then his wrath that was due us for our sin was placed upon Christ at the cross. And in this, Jesus placated the Father's wrath against us for our sin. I love how in Christ alone puts it, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid here in the death of Christ. I live. That's the love of God in Christ given for the propitiation for our sins. And what's John's takeaway in all this? Look at verse 11 in 1 John 4. Beloved, if God so loved us, if God loved us in this way we just talked about, we also ought to love one another. You see, if God has graciously loved us by sending his own son to pay the penalty for our sin, satisfying his righteous wrath, we so rightly deserve as sinners. How could we not all as equally deserving uh, equally deserving of wrath and equally undeserving of God's love, how could we not be compelled to love for one another? And love that is truly love must find its expression in action. You see, love, love from God's standpoint isn't just a feeling he has for us. He sent his son. It's affection and action. And so the same for us. We must not simply feel something toward others or maybe not feel something. We must love our brothers and sisters in Christ and we must demonstrate it in action. It's what 1 John 3 16 tells us, look there, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us. Again, God's action in his love. And, John says, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. This is love that cooks a meal, and love that washes dishes that aren't yours, and love that gives a ride, again, and against traffic. This is love that 
asks good questions of friends and love that listens well, love that bears burdens. This is love that doesn't have excuses for its own lack. This is love that meets more than halfway. It's love that preempts and anticipates needs. It's love that expresses gratitude and looks other people in the eye and says thank you. Love that gives compliments and means it. It's love that prays. It's love that remembers what was shared and love that follows up with other people. This is love in action, modeled after and sourced from the very steadfast love of God for us, both in affection and in action. Finally, in this passage, we see a final aspect of Christian love, and it's the assurance found in Christian love. The assurance found in Christian love. Finally, here in our passage tonight, we see the assurance that this kind of love produces in us as we commit to living it out. Look at verse 12. First John 4, verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Here John shows us the evidence that love is for the Christian of the work of God. This is the great assurance. This is the great security that love provides for the Christian. John begins by stating that no one has ever seen God. It's a truth. It's, we worship the invisible God. This is logic similar to what he'll use again later in verse 20. He says there, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. It's an interplay between the visible and the invisible, the tangible and the intangible. Well, here back in verse 12, John is saying that if we indeed live out that which is visible, that which is tangible, in our love for one another, in deeds of love, indeed and in truth, he said in chapter 3. If we live out our love in tangible ways, then, John is saying, that which we cannot see, that which is spiritual, is true of our lives. And we can be sure of it. You see, if we love one another we can be sure that even though we can't see it, God abides in us. If we love one another, then we can be sure, even though we can't see it, that his love is being perfected in us, that God is working. If we love one another, it is evidence that the God who is love is indeed in us, that we are surely born of God and that indeed we are children of God. If we love one another, it is also evidence that the work of God's love is happening in our lives. That not only are we enabled to love with the love of God, but that we are growing and that we are being perfected in it. That God is working in our hearts to complete the work that he began. That's the sweet assurance found in Christian love. 
You see, our love for one another, friends, is a receipt for God's redemptive purchase. It's a receipt. It shows the work that he is doing, his glorious work in our hearts to love ever more like him. Then the hope and the promise of 1 John 5.13 is for us. John writes these things, he says, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And one of those evidences that John writes about is this love. Friends, if we have love, it shows that we know God, that we are born of God. I think the question comes naturally, what happens when we fail to love? What happens when it doesn't seem like we are growing in this kind of love like it seems we're supposed to? I think one answer has to be what's in 1 John 3. Look at 1 John 3, verses 9 and 10. I think this is one of the answers, and it has to be. It's John's logic here. He says there no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning. Because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. I think that's one of the answers. Is If you fail to love and it becomes a pattern in your life uh, that you do not love others... There should be a rightful examination in your heart about the reality of your life. If you find that a failure to love others is a consistent theme in your life, then you should examine yourself, 1 John 3, 9 and 10 style. You see, if you don't love, and you know you don't love, and you don't repent from your lovelessness, it may be a sign that God does not abide in you and that his love is not being perfected in you. Maybe. I think there's a second answer, and it's an answer that we've heard before in First John. It's this situation. What happens when we fail to love in you know you fail to love, and yet there is, at that point, an acknowledgement of that failure and a humble desire to grow in love. I think it brings us back to where we started in 1 John, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness includes a failure to love, a lack of love, a lovelessness that we might have. And so if we take that to God, we can, as children of God and children of the light, live, as we said before, in the warmth of the light, the warmth of God's love. And that is the forgiveness of a God who is love. And so if you tonight find yourself in a place where you know you are lacking in love, turn and embrace the warmth of the love of God and turn and love God and love others 
repent from your sin. That's the great assurance, the security found in Christian love that we find not in that a standard of perfection that is held over our heads, but the gracious love of God to us is that he has provided a way for us to live in this kind of love and even to fail in this kind of love, but to have a God who forgives us for all our unrighteousness is in and of itself a demonstration of God's love for us. I want to finish our time by telling you about someone you already probably know quite a bit about. You've heard of this guy, Albert Einstein? Probably. One thing you might not know about him is that he was married more than once. Yet in his first marriage to Milova Maric, uh, things began to deteriorate, as sometimes they do, and as sometimes they do with really intelligent people. Now, Marich herself was trained in physics, and when Einstein and Marich's correspondence was discovered in 1987, uh, almost 100 years after Einstein, uh, it revealed a lot about Einstein himself, but also about his love life. You see, as their marriage began to fall apart, uh, Einstein and March were separated for a time. And uh, Einstein sent to March uh, a list of conditions for her to agree to uh, so that he would be willing to come back. And when you read, I want to read you a list of those conditions and see the love of a genius in these conditions. This is what Einstein wrote to his beloved wife. A, you will make sure, one, that my clothes and laundry are kept in good order. Two, that I will receive my three meals regularly in my room. Three, that my bedroom and study are kept neat, and especially that my desk is left for my use only. B, you will renounce all personal relations with me insofar as they are not completely necessary for social reasons. Specifically, you will forgo, one, my sitting at home with you, two, my going out or traveling with you, C, you will obey the following points in your relations with me. One, you will not expect anything from me, nor will you reproach me in any way. Two, you will stop talking to me if I request it. Three, you will leave my bedroom or study immediately without protest if I request it. And D, just for good measure, you will undertake not to belittle me in front of our children, either through words or behavior. Albert Einstein, perhaps the most intelligent, most successful person in the history of the world, and he didn't know a thing about love. I don't know that any of you would dream of having such a list of demands for your roommate 
or your significant other or even your closest of friends. But I think so often in the way that we hold others hostage with our love or maybe in the way that we withhold our love passive-aggressively, we may not be all that different. We are so entitled in our expectations about what others owe us. Others don't deserve our love or our favor, at least not until they show they care, or at least until they apologize, or at least not until they love me like I think they should. It's all about what we deserve and what they don't deserve of us. Well, guess what? The gospel is that you and I don't deserve the love of God. And yet he gave it to us. This is verses 10 and 11 of our passage. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. I think as we've examined our love through the lens of 1 John tonight, we've seen that we not only need to reconstruct, redefine our love according to a a biblical standard, but that we need to just plain old be reminded of our basic need to begin to love others. We need to shift our paradigm of what matters in this season of college and in this life for that matter from that which builds your career, your platform, your portfolio into what builds up others in the church. We need to move from self-focus onto how we might be used of God to love others. We need to not just lower our expectations of others. We need to expect more of what God might do in our hearts if we obey him in this aspect of love. Love what Romans 12 says about love. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And then later in verse 16, live in harmony with another, live in harmony with one another. 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And in verse 21, do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's the kind of love we are to have for one another. And it's the kind of love we're called to in our passage. First John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Let that be us. And let that be our prayer even tonight, that God would help that to be us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage because it shows us our lack. And yet it shows us our being filled that lack being filled by your love, O God. And so we are compelled to re-examine our hearts, 
and why it might be that we don't love others like we should. And so, Father, thank you for this study that we've had in First John because it shows us the light and the life and the love that we have to live in by your grace. Father, thank you for this time that we've had to look at this love, even to marvel at the love of Christ for us, that you sent your Son for our sin, to be the propitiation for it. And so, Father, it compels us to want to love others. And so, Father, even if that passage goes on, it shows us of the help of your Spirit. So, Father, we ask that you would give us that help even tonight as we struggle with our lack and see the great love that you have for us and the great chasm between. Father, help us not just to try harder, but to look to you for the great help that we have in our time of need. Father, as we respond now and even spend some time in fellowship, Lord, grow us in our love, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.